0: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to have with me Dr. Bradley R. Clampett to tell us about his book titled Lost Causes Confederate Demobilization and the Making of Veteran Identity, published by LSU Press. This book pretty much does exactly what it says, and it is fascinating because it analyzes what happened with U.S. Confederate demobilization after the American Civil War. What did they think happened at the time afterwards? What literally, logistically, practically was the experience like? Um, And really kind of takes us on that journey, both sort of in the moment and comparing it then with um, Reminisce's later on. So Brad, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to tell us about your book.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's great. Glad to be here.
0: I'm very pleased to have you. Could we start off with a bit of an introduction of yourself and explain why you decided to write this book?
1: Sure, sure. I, I am a I'm a professor of history at East Central University, a small university in Ada, Oklahoma, in the United States. I focus on Civil War era history, specifically. Most of my research, previous books, have been about uh, primarily about the Western Theater, but also I studied sort of where military and social come together. So uh, the battlefield and the home front, where, where those merge is what I've written about largely. I've written about morale and surrenders in the past and occupation and, and that sort of thing. So this seemed like the next uh, the next logical step. Honestly, what, what got this book project started is, uh it's <laughs> it started, like a lot of projects, it started simple and, and then it and then it grew into uh, something more. It started out. I wanted to examine a very, very simple question that I had been intrigued by, quite literally since I started studying the war in, in uh, graduate school. Uh, and that is just literally how how did these guys get home? Now, that's what it started with. Quite, quite literally, that simple. Uh, I, I wondered, you know, the country that they were fighting to establish uh, no longer existed. Um, there was no government, there was no system, at least initially. So I, I, I really pondered how did a how did a guy from uh, Arkansas, you know, who surrenders in Virginia, how does he get home or a Texan in or uh, North Carolina, you know, literally how did they get home? And then, and then what happened when they reached home? That's what started it. Uh, just a fascination with that. And then it grew, of course, as, as these projects always do, um, I realized immediately, well, uh, you know. The starting point would be their mindset right what's going on in their mind at the time of surrender and then that grew into the creation of a system who cooperated with them logistically how did they get there and then of course um in my notes i always had it as the the now what chapter right (laughs) when they reached home uh now what now what do you do so you might say the book starts with uh The mindset upon surrender and and it and it finishes with the mindset and uh accepting the reality of defeat Mm.
0: no thank you for taking us through that kind of backstory and i think that's also helpfully raised a number of the things that we'll talk through starting as you said with that moment of surrender um because of course it's not one instant when every single soldier kind of immediately knows the surrender has happened, therefore this whole thing has ended. In fact, as you discuss in the book, there's many moments and there's confusion. Did a surrender really happen? What does that mean next? Has the war really ended? So can you sort of take us back to that moment and help us understand to what extent were Confederate soldiers willing to go home and stop fighting? after what we might in a textbook say is the moment of surrender of general lee
1: right yeah it, it's interesting i was a little bit surprised maybe i shouldn't have been i was a little bit surprised at uh how how defiant and <laughs> and aggressive a, a good many of these guys were um and i i wrote in there oh somewhere in there about how Um, modern readers today might be a bit surprised at the level of defiance and anger, uh, even well into spring of of 65, but then, you know, the more I, the more of these accounts I read, the more I thought about it, the more I realized it's, it's really not that surprising, honestly, because we have to keep in mind, you know, who we're looking at here, right? This is not You know, what I what I write in here is not necessarily representative of every person in the South or even necessarily everyone who served. We have to remember the people I'm looking at are the guys who were still under arms. These are the guys still in the ranks in the spring of 65. And so um, it's it's not really surprising that they were still uh, very aggressive. Um, you know, let's not lose sight of the fact that as late as spring 65, these guys are still, well, literally willing to die for their cause. And, and sometimes we forget still willing to kill for their cause. Uh, and so it's, it's hardly surprising really that so many of them held on as long as they did now, as far as what, you know, what broke their spirits as, as I pointed out, as you pointed out, it's. It, it's different things for different guys. Some, for some, it was uh, uh, the fall of Richmond seemed to be a, sort of a symbolic end. For some, it's it's not really until Johnston surrenders the Army of Tennessee in North Carolina that that uh, is the end of it all for some of them. But you know, it it is at the same time it's clear that the the surrender of Lee is is the symbolic and practical end. That's when. Uh, most of these guys seem to understand if they couldn't if they couldn't secure victory with with Lee in the field then it it, it seems increasingly unlikely and eventually they they recognize so uh, on one hand, I'd say that, yeah, the surrender of Lee in the Army of Northern Virginia overall is is uh, in their minds is the death knell of the confederacy but let let us you know it's not it's not lost cause apologia, it's not neo-confederate gibberish to say that these guys were still. Uh, <laughs> rather angry and and aggressive at the end you know why wouldn't they have been is what is what i say to people all the time we're not talking about guys who deserted we're talking about guys who who are still under arms in april and may so uh I, I don't think it's as surprising as the modern reader might might suspect
0: no far fair enough um Thinking then about the emotions they might be feeling, can you tell us more about the mindsets of these veterans of, you know, whatever varying degrees of acceptance they do finally realize, okay, we have to go home. What are they thinking?
1: Yeah. You know, throughout the book, I look at the mindset at different times, surrender, preparing to go home. Once they get home, then what to do. And, and, uh, that's one of the first pivotal moments like you, like you referred to there, what's on their mind when they actually start to go. And I, I realize there are two, two broad themes, two main themes. Um, after they go through the obvious emotions, they're, they're in shock, they're angered, um, devastated, honestly. I mean, you have a lot of scenes of <laughs> grown men, really. They're, they're just uh, genuinely confused and devastated. But um, once they begin to focus, there are, there are a couple of broad concepts. Um, the first one is that they, they want two things known immediately. Uh, and this goes for whether they were writing at the time of the war or later, they want it known number one, that in their opinion, they were right, uh, that they fought for a proper cause. That is to say, they want it known immediately that acknowledging defeat is not at all the same thing as, as admitting that they were wrong. Uh, so that's the first thing. And then the other thing that goes with that is, uh, they wanted it known that they individually had served to the end. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a matter of of honor. So if you put those two things together, then what's on their mind upon surrender first is, uh, "Hey, I did the right thing, and I want credit for having done the right thing," meaning both in terms of their cause and fighting to the end. The other the other thing that's on their mind is is probably obvious, but it uh, their minds turn immediately to the well-being of their families uh, they're quite naturally been <laughs> they they'd long to see their families of course but uh, as we we may get into later the the conditions around the countryside led them to be genuinely concerned about the living conditions the actual physical safety of their families and so you know their mind shifts to getting home usually as quickly as possible I wrote uh, At one point in there, I wrote that they they needed to get home because they were needed at home. This is especially true for for those who were husbands and fathers. This this had to have been particularly traumatic for them, having been away from loved ones, children especially. uh, And now they're fearful of their safety. Uh, And so they're wondering, how how can I get home? Uh, Is there time still for a harvest? Will I need to seek other employment. That's something we see later on in the book, Upon Homecoming. A oh, good many of these men are literally, literally seeking employment the day after they get home uh, from years of service. Um, and, you know, so a responsible man understood that despite the demise of the this would-be country he was trying to create, uh, you know, he understood that a family and a farm waited for him and an uncertain future, frankly. And, and uh, as we'll see, at different times, that, that uncertainty plays a huge role. Um, so, their minds are on their families uh, and the uncertainty that they face.
0: So, given that priority, um, can we turn then to the like practical side, right? The goal, as you said, is to get home, is to get home as quickly as possible. But, Texan and North Carolina, Arkansas, you know, that's not the easiest thing to sort out. So, before we kind of get into where maybe some of these experiences might have gone a bit wrong, let's start with what maybe should have happened or what it looked like on paper. Was there an organized system of Confederate demobilization? And if so, what kind of, how was it meant to work?
1: Okay, so this this developed, it's interesting, it developed over time, but also remarkably quickly. In the very beginning, and by that I mean the Appomattox surrender. There's only sort of a a general agreement between the two sides. The nuts and bolts of it, what we would come to know as actual Confederate demobilization, honestly takes place not really with uh, Union and Confederate leaders in Virginia at Appomattox, but really more so with the Army of Tennessee surrendered North Carolina between... Confederate General Johnston, Joe Johnston, and uh, Sherman, really more Sherman's subordinates, uh, Schofield in particular, they're the ones who really seem to hammer out the nuts and bolts of it. And the thing is, again, I don't know that this is really surprising. Union union officers are actually quite motivated to get these Confederates uh, demobilized and and home. Part of this is uh, humanitarian concern, of course, but it's also... Uh, Again, a more practical impulse, right? I think at war's end, the last thing federal officials want is thousands of angry and armed and bitter southern men roaming the countryside. Uh, So they want these guys home. Uh, Fairly quickly, what happened is uh, the process was uh, the Confederates who were present at a surrender would sign a parole and receive a copy of that. Those not present at surrenders would uh, come into various sites around the South to receive a parole. This is technically a promise not to fight until either uh, a full surrender or they're exchanged. And the parole, uh, the men would carry with them, and this would entitle them to rations provided by the uh, federal authorities, interestingly, but also transportation passes. Uh, And so it's interesting, typically these soldiers would, um, these Confederates, as they would make their way home, they would stop into certain Southern towns, now increasingly occupied by federal troops. They would go to the provost marshal office, show the parole. They would receive X number of days of rations. They would receive a pass to travel on a train or, or, perhaps a river boat or along the coast, the Gulf of Mexico, various steamers, um, and so it's it's sort of a weird I don't know if ironic if it rises to the level of irony but <laughs> these some southern occupied or southern towns occupied by federal forces were almost these sort of these oases in the desert where they could stop and and um, and find food and and, uh, and transportation um, and as far as how it how it actually broke down how it worked it's you know there there really is no typical story but if there were it would be the soldiers would, you know, he might walk a certain distance, then he's able to sort of town hop on the railroads. But, of course, <laughs> the status of the railroads is, is hit and miss, depending on where you were. Uh, so he may walk a ways, He may he may town hop, he may catch a ride on a wagon or a horse or something, uh, and then walk the final the final few miles. Uh, it's, it's actually, it's remarkably effective, remarkably efficient. Honestly, huh. now not everybody everybody benefited from it. Of course, uh, in my sample, I was able to figure out that the the average distance traveled was five hundred eighty six miles. Wow! But it's, it's it's really it's really quite remarkable. It really is.
0: And to what extent, kind of, did this system of the, the towns and the you know work? Were 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 men doing this individually? Were they in groups? Was there fighting between you know? groups of Union soldiers going home and Confederate ones going home in the opposite direction? Was it worse if you were from, you know, Texas and it was further to get home than if you were from Georgia? I mean, or is it kind of just very individualized?
1: In terms of problems, violence, etc. Yeah, that's, it's interesting. Enemy troops were, were, you know, Union troops are, they're no more dangerous than, Necessarily than their their comrades uh, and civilians and just people out in the countryside taking advantage of the chaos. Um, there there were instances of trouble with between Union and Confederate troops. The biggest trouble, um, or at least where it was most consistent, was in East Tennessee. East Tennessee, of course, was Southern; it was Confederate, but uh, home to a great many Unionists and by this point had been occupied by Union forces for a good while. And so East Tennessee, not only because it was occupied, but it also had a significant number of of, uh, black troops, black Union troops. And there were a few communities there in East Tennessee where tensions were very, very high uh, with Confederates coming through there. And um, uh, as far as their safety, yeah, you know, if we talk about the logistics, you know, in fact, we we can go and talk about that. Generally, uh, they they traveled in groups, uh, for, for safety. Um, and, and usually the size of the group was, uh, it, it's interesting. It's, uh, it's not universal, but it's close. They, the groups tended to be large enough for security, but few enough to procure, to, uh, procure resources. Right. So, Several men together could help defend themselves against highwaymen and and uh, various ne'er do wells, as they would write. <laughs> but uh, and, and but also, several men could stop at a random farmhouse and and still be fed a little bit. Whereas twenty five or thirty men, you know, there's there's really nothing that your average farmer can do for you uh, at that stage. So they traveled in groups for safety, small uh, but large enough for security. Hmm. And then, okay. and then, of course, sometimes the system broke down in other ways. There were, oh gosh, countless train wrecks and vessels sinking, and uh, mm. really, really very sad uh, instances. There were several accounts of this. You know, guys had <laughs> they had survived warfare only to only to die in a, a train accident. So, mm. yeah, sometimes the system broke down.
0: Mm-hmm. No, but that that's still interesting to understand. Um thinking about the farmer the farmhouse you just mentioned we've talked about kind of the official plan of this the then also the practicalities of traveling in groups but what about the civilians to what extent did Confederate soldiers receive civilian support and was it mostly like a meal in a farmhouse or what what did that support involve
1: oh yeah this is this is interesting it's uh I'll, I'll kind of combine a couple of parts here this is again this is sort of what started the whole project this is what i in my mind as i went along i considered this the fun part of the book (laughs) so to speak because even though you know as we said there there was a system in place eventually um not every soldier participated in that nor nor was uh, even able to participate in it for example uh before we look closely at the civilians a, a little bit more on what you were asking a moment ago. You know, we can make some general points about uh, guys traveling in different in different ways. For example, um, it, it's interesting what what dictated their route, their route of travel. For example, really, what dictated it more than anything else wasn't it wasn't the army. It wasn't where they were. It was where they were trying to go. That might sound obvious, but I would submit that it's not obvious because you know, the major Confederate armies had men from all over the South. And so the Army of Northern Virginia had men from the Western Theater and, and even the Trans-Mississippi, as did uh, the Army of Tennessee. So we can make some, some generalizations there. For example, uh, the, it, there's really no typical experience, but the most typical experience would be probably Men from the Army of Tennessee surrendered in North Carolina, of course, but they're from Western states. So so these guys surrendered after the Army of Northern Virginia and so therefore could benefit from the process, uh, the procedure that's created. However, they had further to travel. Um, and so they had probably the most typical experience. They had a long a longer way to go, but they had more resources, more things to. Uh, help them with that um what's interesting is is uh the men in the army of northern virginia lee's army the eastern army but from western and trans mississippi states now they had probably well not probably certainly those men western and trans mississippi men who served in the eastern army had the experience that i would say most closely mirrors uh, kind of the traditional old fashioned lost cause kind of image of the, you know, the penniless bedraggled rebel who (laughs) crossed hundreds of miles with little help. Uh, you know, it makes people a little uncomfortable, but it, that comfort really isn't relevant. Um, it's in a sense, that's what the lost cause got right. You know, I know we don't like to phrase it that way, but That's one little window, one little thing where the traditional account is true. Um, Those guys in the Army of Northern Virginia surrendered before the system was really fully in place, and they had, if they traveled west, they had a great deal to travel. Now, as far as the civilians cooperating with them, yeah, almost always the civilians helped. Not always, not always, but civilians would provide food and shelter, most obviously. Uh, they would feed as much as they could. The shelter, now that's interesting, it wasn't always in the home. Sometimes, in fact, from what I can tell more often, they allowed soldiers to sleep in the barn or, or on the porch or something. Uh, and then sometimes uh, the civilians helped with transportation, wagon ride, horse, helping cross a river, that that sort of thing. And, and soldiers very much appreciated remembered, wrote about this assistance. Um, from what I could tell, there's no difference in the likelihood of whether a, a, a well-to-do or poor person would help. There, there appears to have been no difference in, in the likelihood of, of offering assistance. But but there is a difference, or was a difference, in how the soldiers described it. And, and the two things that tended to jump out to the soldiers was... Uh, if, if people of, of very meager means helped them, they remembered that, obviously, right? Uh, if poor folks really gave what little they had to help these soldiers get home, that left an impression on them. It left an impression when relatively well-to-do did not help them, of course. And the other thing, again, not surprising, but when, the, when it was a young woman providing assistance that made a, a big impression on these guys. And that sounds like it's some, you know, bad history professor joke coming, but it's not. These are, most of these guys are 19, 20, 21, 22. Uh, they've been through trauma. Uh, I mean, as much trauma as a, as a young person, a person of that age could possibly see. And they're trying to get home and, uh, and they're at a formative age. So the fact that they would remember uh, these, these things is, is probably pretty predictable. Um, The other theme that that popped up as far as the interaction between civilians and the traveling soldiers is that on occasion, the civilians wanted compensation for helping the soldiers. And what's interesting is that the soldiers, they resented that if they're just passing by a farmhouse looking for food. What's equally interesting, though, is that the soldiers actually understood and approved of the need to compensate if whatever the civilian were offering, if it were part of their livelihood, right? For example, there are a lot of little isolated farms who they supplemented their income because they had a little skiff, a little boat where they helped people cross the river. Well, soldiers expected to pay for that. If they stopped at a hotel, they did not expect a free hotel room. They slept on the porch or in the lobby. So it's interesting. They expected the private citizen to help them and not to expect compensation unless it had to do with their living. And therefore, the soldiers uh, participated in, in what became a barter system. The soldiers took what goods they could acquire along the way, and they traded them in, in, out in the countryside uh, to civilians who were suffering shortages things like coffee and salt uh, and so it, it's interesting that the soldiers participated in this barter system what's all what's equally interesting is that they expected to right so this wasn't surprising to them they knew they would need goods to trade so overwhelmingly the soldiers or, or rather the civilians were supportive and, and helpful but but it wasn't unanimous mm. or, or universal rather
0: and the expectations of it had all of these nuances which is of course yeah no which is fascinating so um staying on this kind of topic of what the soldiers thought about this and kind of the the process of traveling home more broadly um one of the things that i think is great in the book is you compare what soldiers wrote sort of immediately as this was happening for example maybe letters home kind of in advance of their arrival with later reflections that some of them wrote kind of, you know, it's been 20 years, here's what I remember of that summer. If we're thinking about kind of differences and nuances in terms of expectations soldiers had about who would provide what kind of support, do we see nuances or discrepancies between the reflections if we think about it in terms of time, the immediate ones versus the later on ones?
1: Yeah, that's... That's interesting, and that's a, there was a philosophical decision <laughs> that I had to make—philosophical slash, I guess, uh, methodology as well—at the very beginning. I had to ask myself: uh, Would I include post-war sources? Because uh, a book I had done several years ago, I looked at uh, morale and and identity and nationalism and this sort of thing, and in that book, I consciously excluded anything that was not written at the time. Well, in this case, I, I realized quickly that I, if I did that, um, I, I, I had problems. I, conf- I if I were to exclude post-war sources in this instance, I would confront a problem that was rather atypical in civil war research, and that was a possible dearth of sources. You know, normally in Civil War scholarship, gosh, (laughs) you could just keep researching. There's always something else out there. Uh, But in this case, I realized quickly, now, wait a minute, my sample isn't all Civil War soldiers, nor is it even all Confederates. It's Confederate soldiers who were still under arms at the end of the war who actually wrote about the subject matter. And so I realized uh, I'm probably going to need to involve post-war sources. But then I realized this is, this is what I sort of loosely call an opportunity for analysis, right? <laughs> let's use both kinds of sources, and then let's compare. You know, do we see a discrepancy? Uh, and, and what I found is uh, there's a remarkable consistency. It's not universal, as I'll explain, but it's, but it's remarkable how consistent wartime and post-war accounts were Uh, Some of this is predictable, of course. Others, others not. Uh, For example, you know, a modern reader would expect post-war accounts to be much more glowingly pro-Southern, right? Uh, Lost cause, wave the flag kind of thing. Uh, United front. Whereas wartime diaries and letters that are not intended for public consumption might be, you know, they might be willing to uh, shed light on less flattering ideas uh, particularly if those are uh, if if the wartime or the post-war accounts are published during uh, tumultuous period of reconstruction so with that in mind I I, I looked at, it, at at all of these things and I realized certain things they agreed on almost unanimously or universally uh, post-war and wartime sources uh, for example the overwhelmingly supportive civilians on the way home that's true whether they're writing in a diary at the moment or a memoir 30 years later. That's just not universal, but overwhelmingly, civilians were tremendously helpful. Also, the receptions that the soldiers received as they passed through communities, mostly positive. Uh, and what's, what's also interesting, and this is what gives, gives us some credibility, the areas where they were not well-received. Uh, East Tennessee, for example. Those accounts also were consistent wartime uh, with post-war, but there were differences. Uh, For example, those who wrote about their demobilization years later, they tended to downplay the instances of civilians refusing to help. Now, like I said, civilians usually helped, but there are plenty of times when they didn't. And with that in mind, as many... Uh, as many memoirs and regimental histories as we have, there probably should be more, uh, accounts of, you know, of, of uh, acknowledging that the civilians didn't help. Maybe this is by design, you know, maybe they're trying to depict a united South during the reconstruction era. Uh, or maybe also, at least in some cases that they just considered it all rather unremarkable and just didn't feel the need to write about it. Um, along those same lines, a relative few of these veterans claimed <laughs> it's really a rather outlandish claim that the, uh, on their entire journey home, they were always helped. that not a single person turned them away. Um, well, you know, gosh, if the average distance traveled was 600 miles, that's just nonsensical. That's not possible. Uh, those claims were almost always made by post-war writers. And so Maybe they're remembering it the way they wanted to remember it, or they wanted later readers uh, to, to see a more united South. Um, the handful of accounts that were wartime uh, that claimed always to have received support, those are fairly easy to explain. Uh, and, and I explain them in the book. You know, There's a guy, for example, who his entire journey home was just across part of East Texas. Well, he wasn't going very far. That was a bountiful area, relatively untouched by the war. He knew the people in question, so uh, sure. You know, it's, it's realistic that he was always helped, and one or two of the other claims uh, along those lines were people traveling with famous officers. Uh, one of them was uh, General Beauregard, so, you know, here again, obviously those guys are unlikely uh, to be turned away. Another place we see some discrepancies it's interesting is in their descriptions of the help they received from freed people, former slaves, black civilians on their way home. Now, what's interesting is we don't there's no difference with regard to the likelihood or the frequency of this. The fact that traveling southerners were sometimes assisted by freed people is, is not in any way unusual. It, there are countless examples of it. What's different is the descriptions Right, So the wartime accounts are really rather brief, very matter-of-fact, what kind of aid was rendered, generally what happened, and then they move on. Whereas the post-war accounts (laughs) are much more detailed, more verbose, uh, trying to get into the implications of these visits. In other words, trying to portray free people as uh, being unflinchingly loyal, Right, to, uh, to Southern whites, maybe trying to cultivate a certain image of Southern race relations, you know, especially during Reconstruction. So you know, you didn't see uh, post-war sources exaggerating the likelihood of receiving helps, uh, help rather from freed people. but we saw different descriptions of it. And then the only the other really big thing as far as comparing post-war writings to wartime, it wasn't about travel, it was about their service, their dedication to their cause, right? Uh, This is something I I noticed only visually as I was going through my sources and my notes and it finally jumped out at me. When they wrote about their service uh, as, you know, an honorable uh, Confederate soldier, if they were writing at the time, they wrote in both the collective and the individual. We were right. We did right. We were honorable. I did the right thing. We did the right thing. Whereas post-war accounts, it's interesting, almost always were collective. It was we. It was the South. It was the Confederacy. Uh, Same sentiment, but uh, coming at it in a more more collective sense. And I think we have to acknowledge uh, that the fact that they're writing for a a public audience and they're writing during... uh, Political climate that would uh, lead them to want to portray a united South, right? So, yeah, th- th- that uh, comparing the the sources, I I, I felt like it had to be done. I don't see a lot of people doing that for some reason. I think we should do more of that.
0: Yeah, no, I think that uh, gives a very interesting um, picture, especially with those discrepancies. So, thank you for taking us through that. Um, I'd like to move now to talk about something that. I guess, falls into the category we've been discussing already of not actually that surprising if you think about it, Um, but it's still worth kind of bringing up properly to the surface as we've been doing so far, which is that, you know, even if these systems are working, even if the lack of system, people still get home, there's a lot of anxiety on the line for the returning soldiers, for the civilians that they're passing through. There's a reason that they're traveling in groups for safety. There's a reason that civilians might say, Yes, I'll support you, but not in the house where my you know, children might be. There's a lot of tension around. So again, perhaps unsurprisingly, the summer of 1865, per your description, was not the most law-abiding of <laughs> times. <laughs> so why was it quite so law- lawless? And perhaps more importantly, um, what were the factors that, meant that it was just the summer of 1865 that was such a problem it wasn't like okay 1865 the next five years you know what in what made this happen but then what also brought it to a close
1: yeah the this is something that i was another example something i knew about but i didn't know the scale of it and i think that's because i I had written about this uh, uh years and years ago just within one state um and, and I, I suspect this is probably true of a lot of us who a lot of Civil War historians, they know there was chaos that summer. I don't think most people are aware of just how widespread it was. The thing is, you know, we have to look at the moment, the in a historical sense, the the historical moment, the we throw around the word surreal a lot, probably too much, but I think the I think in this case it applies. The war is over, but not physically completely over it's winding down lincoln has just been assassinated um the greatest crisis this country had ever seen is still ongoing it's winding down but it's ongoing and the country's just sort of drifting there is there's no plan in place there's no plan for reconstruction fully in place at this point uh and so everyone's just sort of floating along meanwhile in the uh in the south not everywhere but but Most places, we have to remember the law, the system itself has collapsed or it has been crushed, depending on your perspective. Uh, There is literally no law enforcement. We have to remember there are stretches of literally hundreds of square miles where there is no law. Uh, The Confederacy has ceased to exist. State governments have largely cease to exist, cease to function anyway. some of them literally on the run the Texas <laughs> Texas governor uh, literally fled to Mexico uh, so there's no there's no state authority, there's no national authority. The Confederate armies are disintegrating before their eyes and uh, and the federal troops in most cases are not yet on the scene. And so what we have unfortunately is, People of every type, civilians and military, young and old, white, black, everything everything we can think of, they all participated in this. They all took advantage of the situation. Uh, in some cases, it, I, I should say to be fair to these people, in most cases it starts with government property. Uh, there are shortages all over the place. There are people doing without, and then they find these Confederate warehouses full of supplies and in some cases food. Uh, this only angers people even more. They uh, and so they raid these warehouses, uh, and then unfortunately, it it does it does shift to private property. Uh, a good many of the soldiers themselves resorted to, uh, you know, what you just might call a, a whatever it takes kind of attitude. I've I've got to get home, and I'm six states from from home, and so uh, if stealing this horse. Will get me there. Then so be it. Uh, and so the anarchy spreads. Uh, it's 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 funny to try to to try to impose some order and structure on the study of anarchy, but we can. It largely follows the east west chronological pattern of surrender, uh, and then the east west pattern of of demobilization. Um, the soldiers, and interestingly enough, the public overwhelmingly. Uh, actually supported the soldiers in most of this. They they said, look, the soldiers are entitled to government, well, former government property, public property. A good many of the Confederate soldiers had not been paid for months and months. They were due back pay. Um, and so the attitude at the time, the Southern attitude, whether military or civilian, at the time was, well, look, this isn't a... Uh, <laughs> This isn't about ma- uh, nationalism or patriotism anymore, you know. It's, it's if, if we, the soldiers, and to a lesser extent the civilians, if we don't take this property, well, it's just going to end up in the hands of Yankees, and good God, no one wants that. Uh, so the soldiers were, they, they said they're entitled to it. They should have it. Uh, and this is in particular true of animals, mules, horses, uh, anything that could help, could help these men in, in their post-war lives. What's also interesting, the more you, (laughs) the more I read their sources, I realized Southerners in in general had begun to develop what we might call a rather malleable or flexible definition of theft. Right. They started to say, well, is it even really theft? Mm -hmm. It was public property. It was Confederate property. There is no Confederacy anymore. So who does it belong to? If it doesn't belong to the soldiers, then who does it belong to? Now, as as I said, the the more unfortunate aspect of it is it did spread to private property, and it and it unfortunately reached a point beyond this idea of well these guys had served so they need to be compensated. This is it's full it's full scale rioting in cities. The countryside is is terribly dangerous. Uh, There is there is uh, unchecked violence. For hundreds and hundreds of square miles, um, and what's interesting is it. it <laughs> well, here we go again. It's not surprising. It it just became the norm. I I found multiple accounts where so uh, civilians were genuinely shocked when soldiers didn't steal something. Uh, I I cited a number of them in the book. Probably my my favorite one is a. A young man from Arkansas had made his way home across however many states, and and he got to the point where he was within oh x number of miles, uh, close enough to home that he started to see familiar faces, and he's walking, and <laughs> he saw an acquaintance, and the acquaintance was was shocked. He said, "What? Why in the world are you walking? Why didn't you just steal somebody's horse?" <laughs> so this, they they were genuinely surprised when they, uh, you know, when they didn't steal it. As far as what began to calm it down, this is partly predictable, but there's also something we don't normally think about. The most obvious thing, of course, is the arrival of federal troops uh, to begin you know, full, true reconstruction. However, it begins to calm down a little bit before that. And that's because, and we can trace it, you can see the pattern in the sources, it's as the soldiers get home. As they finally reach home. And this is for two reasons. One reason, of course, is as the soldiers get home, well, they begin, you know, now they will protect um, their property. They become the security. And in many, many, many southern towns, we have countless examples of this. They form home guards. So these guys literally have just gotten home from the war, and then they once again arm themselves and form home guards to defend their, their, their farms, uh, and, uh, and their homes. Now, here's the other reason, kind of the, I don't know if we want to call it a hidden reason, but, <laughs> uh, the other reason that, uh, the arrival of the men home helps to bring about security, not just that they're defending, but let's be honest, they're also home. Now they're not looting on their way home. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's a strange it's a strange existence the soldiers were part of the problem and then they were part of the solution and then of course and then of course obviously the arrival of federal troops uh, is really what calms things
0: down no but but as you said part of the problem and solution which
1: exactly yeah
0: is a really interesting switch right you know 300 miles from home you're the problem and 3 miles from home you're now the solution right bunny <laughs> and you know there might be a difference in just a few weeks uh and not a lot else between them so very interesting to think about um all right so we're now you know closer to the 3 to 1 mile from home part of the journey and obviously the moment of homecoming is a big deal it's honestly still a big deal today uh, especially home from conflict even when you don't have to traipse 586 miles on foot um So going into those recollections from the soldiers, what were the sort of common themes that you found in analyzing what they said, what they thought about that real moment of homecoming?
1: This is one of my favorite parts of it. I I genuinely, I, I enjoyed collecting all of these accounts and looking for the themes and trying to recreate it because... The homecoming moment alongside the the logistics of how they have how they reached home. That's what really started all this in my mind. Um, you know, most of them are are what we would think uh, they're joyful reunions. These guys, despite having lost the war, overwhelmingly were treated like conquering heroes uh, when they when they returned. But, you know, so that's what you would expect to see. However, there are a great many of them that don't fit that that do not fit that model. Sometimes the homecoming moment itself only, uh, it just intensified things like the, the melancholy that was brought on by defeat. You know, these guys, a lot of these guys were really traumatized by having lost. Remember, again, these are the guys who stayed to the end. Um, they're concerned for their family, the anxiety for the future. You know, they they now confront this post-war reality. There's a, a good many of these described in the book, but I, I quoted this particular guy here. He's a random infantryman from Virginia. Uh, and he wrote, I arrived home on the 15th to find my wife on the verge of the grave. My little children did not know me. Well, this comes up quite a lot, actually, that the homecoming is anything but joyful. Uh, and, and some of the themes uh, and explanations for this One that I saw uh, fairly regularly is that the family had presumed him dead. Uh, And sometimes, I mean, they had even been told point blank by returning comrades that the that the guy had had perished only for him to show up. (laughs) And that sounds that sounds like it's a, you know, a a bad movie script or something, but it's actually quite realistic. And it happened any number of times. A similar one which must've been heartbreaking for some of these guys is, is, uh, family members, not, not recognizing them when they showed up. And, uh, the more of these I saw, the more I, I I thought about it and I realized, you know, this, this is perfectly realistic. Uh, in some cases we're talking about, you know, young fathers whose, whose children are, are very, very young. And so it's hardly surprising that the children wouldn't recognize them. But it's also true with spouses and even parents. And at first I was dubious of this, but, but then I thought about it. And, you know, if, if a guy left home in his late teens and he's returning in his early twenties, he's been gone two, three, four years, maybe probably three years, most likely. Um, these are formative years for any man under any circumstances. He's been gone during those years. He's been through absolute hell, uh, maybe wounded, probably significant weight loss, uh, changes in facial hair. So uh, the fact that he would arrive home and his own parents not initially recognize him uh, is both heartbreaking and realistic. Uh, I had a, a couple of accounts of, <laughs> it sounds made up, but there were a couple of accounts. The only, the only entity that recognized the guy when he showed up was this dog. <laughs> that sounds made up, but there were, there were at least two or three guys who said that. Uh, and it gets even, you know, even more serious really because you know, they see the state of their farm. They see, they see the condition of their families, their children. Maybe they learn of a loved one uh, has, has passed away at this point. Um, the most common themes, though, would be parents welcoming young soldiers. We have to remember, it, it, you know, in my sample, most of these guys are not married. They're relatively young men, and so most of them are not returning to wife and children. They're returning to their parents' Uh, and siblings, and so those were quite uh, detailed and, and uh, joyful accounts. Um, there were descriptions of uh, reuniting with free people, former slaves, sometimes who were still in the plantation. Obviously, this refers to a minority of Confederate soldiers, but there are a good many accounts there. Those are intriguing, to say the least. Uh, and then I guess the other theme is is a for some of these guys and it's just, they're just terrible to read. It's a feeling of hopelessness. You know, they've, they lost the war. They're ashamed of that. Many of them, they're ashamed to come home and defeat. Um, they look around the farmers in shambles. They're fearful of the future. Um, and so while yes, the homecoming moment for the most part were these wonderful, joyful reunions that I guess today would be on YouTube (laughs) by the thousands, uh, but they weren't always—they weren't always warm and fuzzy. Sometimes they're terribly tragic.
0: No, and I think that's again probably still more relevant today than we might think. So useful to see it in that context. Um, can we talk a bit more about kind of the the fearfulness of this? Um, what were the concerns and adjustments that the soldiers had once they came home? What were they and their families scared of, and how did this shape their decisions? can we stay in that fearful moment
1: yeah they they were fearful there there's the specific and then there's the bigger picture right so on the specific side there they they were fearful of things like property confiscation uh, which was a reality not for most of them but it but it there was such legislation uh, they were fearful of property confiscation they were afraid of uh, Union authorities seeking revenge; they were afraid of uh, that that federal authorities under Reconstruction would attempt to humiliate them. They were worried about federal rule overall, um, and probably most significant, they they feared uncertainty. Uh, you know, we must remember, Southern society <laughs> uh, has been turned on its head in in a, in a certain way. Uh, so they're they're fearful of the unknown, and and these are not unreasonable fears, right? Just because today we don't share their views on society and race, etc., doesn't mean we can't understand why they would be afraid. It's perfectly reasonable that these people were afraid. Um, they they address these concerns quite quickly. Uh, many of them they move very quickly. Obviously, a relative few of them joined violent organizations, the KKK and the like, but most of them. Instead, they moved into, they joint veterans associations, which were very active and very powerful. Uh, they rather quickly renewed their political allegiance uh, to the Democratic Party. And they focused on basically white Southern unity uh, based on shared suffering, shared sacrifice from the wartime. And also, and it's important, uh, in addition to this whole shared suffering and sacrifice, they shared that they blame the North. Blame the North for everything, uh, and this this created a sense of unity. And it and it uh, the goal became as quickly as possible to restore white southern control in everything: politics, economics, labor relations, race relations. So that's you know that's what they were fearful of. And then, uh, as far as their three main concerns, you know, or, uh, the way I wrote it out is three main concerns and the adjustments that they had to had to deal with when they came home. Uh, here again, immediate and then big picture, in the immediate, the number one concern is immediate economic survival. Now what? Uh, I, I, I cited a good many examples here. Uh, well, these guys come home and, and they are literally either in the fields working the next day or a bunch of the guys, there's nothing There's nothing for them So at the farm, so they flee to the cities to look for some kind of wage-paying position. Um, But on the economic recovery thing, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. They moved rapidly and with a sense of purpose. And I think that's partly obvious and partly not. The obvious part is, well, they're broke. (laughs) They have to eat. They have to take care of themselves and their families. But I think there's more to it. I think it's a conscious effort. They want to be in control of their fate, and they want everyone else to see that they are in control. They want to show their uh, erstwhile enemies, right, that they are not broken. They are not broken souls. They are in charge, um, and I think, in addition to the economic recovery, the recovery, the other two fears are um, the new relationship with free people. How is this going to work? And just a fear of reconstruction, a fear of what they call Yankee rule being under the yoke of Yankees yet again, as, as they would see it. Um, and so once again, they moved quickly, rapidly, uh, aggressively really to control the situation. It's, uh, it's, it's also, you know, I don't, I don't get too deep into this, but there are some sections in the book about manhood and masculinity and such. And I reject the notion entirely that these white Southern men were robbed of their masculinity. All they did is redefine it. Uh, but but they they weren't going to let outside forces define them, um, and that's why they were so aggressive and moved so quickly. Uh, you know, I, I I stayed in here more than once that these guys, they remained Confederate, and Confederates long after the demise of the Confederacy. Confederates, both ways you can take that with a capital C and a lowercase C. <laughs> they mm-hmm. uh, these guys were were rebel when there was no rebellion. You know. Mm-hmm. My favorite, when I quoted this guy, he was a Virginian, uh, he wrote one last letter to his wife be- before he left for home, and he said, the present, thank God, is only the beginning of the end. The military power of the South is broken. The spirit is not. So, you know, this isn't just later, this lost cause mentality. It's from day one.
0: Mm-hmm. No, thank you for taking us through that, um, both the details and the kind of bigger picture implications. I really only have one question left. um, And I'm particularly interested in the answer, given how you started us off explaining how this book came very much in some ways out of your previous work, um, and kind of had that fascinating question of like, how did they get home and what did they think about it? So (laughs) um, given that this book is now finished and investigated, has it raised the next project? Is there anything you might be working on now that this is done uh, that you'd like to highlight or preview for us?
1: I have a few ideas bouncing around in my head. And part of this book uh, has led to a... It, it's contributed to a certain idea I have. I, I had this idea in part from this book, from the research, and in part from teaching, actually. Um, one topic I'm I'm interested in right now, I don't. I haven't really gotten too deep into it, but uh, I'm just sort of loosely referring to it as the, the power of place. What is it about these actual locations that influence us so much? Uh, and, and again, two things sort of planted this idea in my mind. And I, I'm I, I'm not really so much into the whole thing about the monuments and the statues and the like. I guess one would have to weigh in on that, but I'm thinking more in terms of the actual physical locations of these historically significant events. The locations are powerful. They affect us. Uh, in the book, I noticed, as these guys made their way home, they sometimes... Went through areas where they had fought, and I have examples of guys uh, uh, from the Army of Tennessee making their way back to Western states, and they're crossing through the battlefields of the Atlanta campaign. And these are—they're literally walking across the ground where they had fought and killed, and had comrades killed. And it really—it hurt them. It hurt them to see that in it, and it—it it really had an effect on them. Also, it's interesting. Sometimes we, (laughs) this sounds like the generic college professor, but sometimes our our experiences with our students lead us Mm -hmm. to things. I I, I took, uh, I always, I don't always, but I try always to take civil war classes on field trips and a, uh, really the best group I've ever had was years ago. In fact, one of them, she's, she's a university professor now. So uh, if you want to feel old, but, uh, I I took this great, great group, and we went to Shiloh, Battle of Shiloh in Tennessee. We'd read about it, et cetera. And I just, I sat back and I watched them, and I could see, and I, I listened to them, and I heard one of the guys say, oh, now I get it. Now I see it. You know, they could stand in the hornet's nest, and they understood what happened. They could see the Confederate burial trenches, the bloody pond, you know, Johnston's death site, Pittsburgh landing, you know, physically walking in these people's steps had an effect on them. Mm. And they were out measuring how far was this and how far, you know, and I thought, wow, okay, you know, there's, there's something here. Mm -hmm. So I I have an idea on trying to analyze why do we, why are we fascinated with these historic sites? And uh, is, is there something about actually visiting it that does something to us? So, that's on my mind, and then I have I have some uh, some other things I'm interested in. There are some uh, I don't think it would rise to the level of book, maybe more like an article. But uh, uh, where I teach today in in Oklahoma, Oklahoma of course was not a state at the time of the war; it was Indian Territory. But here within Indian Territory, you know, you had various native groups not just different tribes but wildly different experiences some pro-confederate some pro-union there were um, reserve tribes there were five nations uh there were plains tribes uh and they they were not at all all on, you know on the same side and we have a series of of massacres here uh natives massacring other natives there's a there's a massacre of black troops up in the northeastern part of the state that's received almost no coverage, Uh, and so I'm I'm interested in looking at those as well.
0: Hmm. All right. Well, those are some fascinating projects. Thank you very much for previewing them for us. And of course, while you are off working on them, uh, listeners can read the book we've been discussing again, titled Lost Causes, Confederate Demobilization and the Making of Veteran Identity, published by LSU Press. Brad, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it.